0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today and for Your grace. Thank You for this time we have now to come before You. We thank You that we have access to You uh, by the blood of Your Son Jesus Christ because of His death, His burial, His resurrection, and uh, ultimately his, uh, the eternal life and a contact with You that we have through Him. God, we pray that You'd be with us. God, that the Gospel would be Uh, not only evident in our minds, but that our hearts would be filled with just the beauty of the gospel and would be that we would be encouraged by your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that you'd be with us now as we look to your word and that you'd encourage us to not only hear and understand, but also apply that which we are learning. God, that you would work mightily in our midst and that you would day by day make us more like your son Jesus and that you would begin that process or continue that process even now As we look to your word, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we continue our way uh, through the book of Zechariah. Last week we started Zechariah 1, verses 1 through 6, and today we're going to continue picking up where we left off with Zechariah 1, verses 7 through 17. And just a bit of review, if you remember, the the books of Zechariah and Haggai, we, we worked through Haggai about three years ago, and the books of Zechariah and Haggai are connected. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries, meaning they wrote at the same time, God called them as prophets at the same time to minister to the same people, but they had a little different ministry. Haggai's primary focus was to call the people to do the work of the Lord, and Zechariah's primary ministry, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but Zechariah's primary ministry was to call the people into right relationship with the Lord. The two are connected and Zechariah certainly does encourage the people to do the work and Haggai does encourage the people to be in right relationship, but their primary focuses are complementary and fit together. So if you remember, we, when we worked through our, our way through Haggai, Haggai wrote to God's people after they had spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. They had sinned against the Lord. They had been carried off out of their land and had been taken 900 miles away. I don't know how far... 900 miles from here is, like, is it? It's like Virginia ish, isn't it? Which is kind of funny. So, um, just knowing that I spent seven months in exile in Virginia. So, you go um, <laughs> seven, 900 miles, right? They traveled 900 miles uh, to this foreign land, were taken captive and held there by the Babylonians. And after 70 years, they were brought, they were allowed to come back home and began to rebuild the temple. And if you remember from Haggai, they started rebuilding the temple, and then their efforts stalled. There was, there was famine, and there was trouble, and they, they, didn't have their, they, they had financial problems. God said, you put money in your pocket, and it falls out, and your pocket ends up empty. He says, because you're not doing the work of the Lord. They stopped working on the temple for 16 years. And Haggai comes, and he says... He says, rebuild the temple, begin the work again. And they build for about a month and then they get discouraged. They start building the temple and they look at it and they go, this is never going to amount to anything. This temple is nothing compared to what Solomon's temple was. And we're not going to be able to rebuild that same temple. So God comes again through Haggai and says... Yes, understand that this temple is not what Solomon's temple was, but it's going to be something even greater. And he's pointing to, forward to the Messiah coming, and pointing forward to the fulfillment of when Messiah comes and dwells in his temple, and that, that the temple will be far greater than that of Solomon's day. So there's a forward look, and in the midst of that, Zechariah comes on the scene, and that's when we had Zechariah versus uh, chapter one verses one through six last week. And if you remember, Zechariah preached a message of repentance. He said repentance is more than outward conformity. It's about changing your affections. It's not only turning away from sin and turning uh, uh, toward better actions, but also turning toward God. So repentance is more than outward conformity. And then he said that God in His grace was issuing a call to them to repent. And then lastly, that the time to repent was now. He said the time to repent is is now. So on that, on the heels of that, we have Zechariah 1 verses 7 through 17. So with that understanding, let's look at God's Word. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah 1 verses 7 through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth." So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel, who was speaking with me gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster." Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. I've become fully convinced that it's important to preach through difficult books of the Bible, not only for your benefit, but also for my benefit. I think there's something special about coming to a book like Zechariah that frankly, when I read this the first 75 times, I thought, how am I ever going to preach a message on there's a guy who's standing amongst myrtle trees and he's in a ravine and there's horses and some are red and some are white and some are sorrel color. What is going on here? But I really began to think, and the more I prayed about this, and the more I thought about this, the more I thought, I don't want you to just read the easy passages of Scripture. That There is benefit in reading through the epistles. There is benefit in reading through the book of James. But what I want you to also do is struggle with these difficult, difficult passages of Scripture and to see Jesus in the Old Testament. That we should look to the Old Testament and see the God of grace and mercy who has saved us by His Son, Jesus Christ. And we should see that there is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that the New Testament is evident in the Old. That it points forward to the New Testament. So I want you to wrestle with these Scriptures. And I think it's important that we wrestle with them as a group so that week by week, month by month, year by year, you're doing the same thing at home. So we begin this passage. Our Scripture passage begins... By saying this, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. We read that, and that's significant because we know that this message, these visions, were received by Zechariah three and a half months after his first message. So last week the message was preached, verses 1 through 6, that message came, and then three and a half months later, these other visions come to Zechariah. There's eight visions that we're going to work our way through. Today we're going to look at the first vision. There's eight of them that were given to Zechariah on one night. He receives these eight visions. And we'll work through not always one at a time, sometimes two at a time, but we'll see how these messages connect and relate and kind of build up to a crescendo, if you will, with the middle messages. But today we're going to look at uh, this first message. So it's three and a half months after or first vision, three and a half months after his first message, and two months after Haggai's final message. So this vision comes a full two months after the book of Haggai ends. So you can kind of see how the two overlap. God's people at this point had continued to work on the temple as Haggai had directed them to do, but they did so during very unsettling and uncertain times. We know what it's like in America to live in unsettling and uncertain times. It seems like, I mean, even our state, right? Today we have, tomorrow we we face a state that can't go to work because we can't figure out a budget. There's no budget. The state's shut down. And it's unsettling and it's uncertain for a lot of people. And very much the same thing was very much the case in their times, only to a much more massive scale. The people had been allowed to return to the land of their fathers and they began to rebuild the temple, but they were still under the control of Persia. Babylon, Persia had, had conquered Babylon, but now they're just under another tyrant's rule. And they, they'd watched Persia go through a great deal of political unrest, and there'd been multiple transitions of power over the years. So that's the context in which these visions come. And Zechariah hears from the Lord. So we're going to work our way kind of section by section through these this first vision, giving a little bit of background as we go. And then we're going to try to draw out four promises that I want you to see that God makes to His people in verses 16 through 17. So let's start by looking at verse 8. There we read this. It says, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses, Behind him now, much has been made of the color of these horses and the significance of the myrtle trees. And I want to tread very, very careful here. It'd be very easy to just stand up here and say, "Well, the red horse means this, the white horse means that, the sorrel horse means that." And I remember in Bible college, I remember one of my my, one of my professors saying, "Whatever you do, don't teach confusion. Pick a position." And teach that position. Don't just teach everything that could possibly ever be. But I also want to be careful. I want to make sure that the position that I take is the right position. And there are times in Scripture when we're just not sure if we should read so much meaning into everything we read. So a lot of ink has been spilt about what, these, what this vision means. I think there is some significance, and we can say these things remind us of certain things, but we certainly can't say with certainty that these things have very clear symbolic meanings and draw a line in the sand. So in other words, the colored horses, we know that horses were instruments of war. We know that they were used for speed, that they were not chariots, the riders were not chariots, so they weren't. Uh, heavy horses meant to conquer, but that they were meant for speed and they were sent out just to search and see what was going on, these riders were. And the colors, I do think, are significant. And again, I don't want to read too much into this, but the red horse being the color of blood and the white horse being the color of victory and then the sorrel horse, which many commentators argue was a, a combination of red and white, that the sorrel horse was, was kind of a blotchy red and white color. And that it was a symbol of God's judgment and mercy mixed. And I do think it is appropriate when we think about Zechariah's time to recognize, and in our time, that oftentimes we see God's judgment, we see God's victory, and we see this judgment and victory kind of mixed all at the same time. And that's often what we see in our world, just like Zechariah would have seen it. In his world. And also, there's a lot of talk about these myrtle trees that are growing in the ravine. And many have compared the myrtle trees to the high and mighty cedars. Myrtle trees were just basically little bushes. They're not really trees at all, they're just shrubs. And they grew in the low places in the ravine. Myrtle trees are very significant to Israel, they're common in Israel. And I think really what's pictured here is that the prophet had this vision, and the vision was of the horses, the horses and the rider being in the ravine in the low places among the myrtle trees. In other words, among Israel. And that the horses and the riders were coming to Zechariah, and they were coming to him in the valley. And it's oftentimes that we find ourselves in a valley, and God comes to us in that place. And I think it's significant as we read this text. Now look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And here's where I say we want to be careful and not read too much because Zechariah didn't even know what he saw. And he said to the Lord, What am I seeing? And the Lord didn't say, Well, the red horse means this, the white horse means that, and the myrtle trees mean this. Instead, he says this. Then the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those, this is different, the man among the myrtle trees is different than the angel who's speaking with me. These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So he says, these back here, these horses, and I think it's implied that they have riders, are sent to patrol the earth. So they answered, the angel of the Lord, that is the riders, they answered him, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Those who had been sent to patrol the earth, the angels, I think is who is referred to here, the angels riding those horses, they were sent to patrol the earth, they addressed their leader, the man among the myrtle trees, the one on the red horse. And here we see that he is none other than the angel of the Lord. Now this is a name that is used commonly throughout the Old Testament when, to refer to when God Himself appears before men. The angel of the Lord. In technical terms, this is called a theophany. Listen to a couple of Old Testament passages where the angel of the Lord appears. First in Genesis 16, verses 7 through 10. And here we see the angel of the Lord speaks not just on behalf of God, but speaks as God. So he's not just a representative, but he speaks as God himself. Genesis 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar. By a, this is Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. By the spring on the way to shore, he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. That the angel of the Lord speaks as though he is God." I will do this. And again, in Genesis 22, verses 9 through 18, not only speaking as a representative of God, but also as God Himself. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there. This should be a pretty familiar text for all of you. Built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord says, You didn't withhold your son, your only son, from me. Again, he's speaking as God. He goes on and says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, verse 15, a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore because you have obeyed my voice. And then again in Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6, we have Moses in the burning bush. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And as he looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And what does he say? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, when you see this, phrase, the angel of the Lord. It is not just merely an angel, but it is God appearing in some sort of angelic form. And many argue that the angel of the Lord is actually Christ. That it's the second person of the Trinity appearing in pre-incarnate, before Christ was born in the flesh, appearing in pre-incarnate form. Fred Dickinson addresses this. when He, he says this, quote: It seems when the definite article, that is, the... When the is used, it is specifying a unique being separate from other angels. So, an angel of the Lord is different from the angel of the Lord, is what he's saying. The angel of the Lord speaks as God, identifies himself with God, and exercises the responsibilities of God. The appearances of the angel of the Lord cease when? After the incarnation of Christ. There's no further reference to the angel of the Lord. There's some confusion about who rolled the tomb away, but that's only because of Greek. There's no definite article in the Greek in some. In fact, the King James adds a the there that doesn't exist and says the angel of the Lord rolled the stone away when it's not really the the isn't there. But the angel of the Lord is never mentioned again in the New Testament after the birth of Christ. So what I want to say is it certainly seems that there are times when the angel of the Lord is God Himself taking on angelic form. And there are times when that's maybe not as clear. In any case, we would be wise to let the context determine His identity. And in this case, I don't want to go beyond what the text says and make it seem as though Zechariah envisioned Jesus. The Zechariah said, oh yes, that's the Messiah riding on the horse because I don't think that's the case. The Zechariah didn't say, yes, God is a triunity, that there's three persons in God and that Jesus, the Messiah, is that person riding on the horse. I don't think he saw it that clearly. However, it seems that the picture that is portrayed here is that God is among His people. And Zechariah clearly understood that. That He is with them in the valley And that in this difficult and uncertain time, that He is there in the myrtle trees in the valley. And He is sovereignly directing His armies, those who are riding the horses. This is consistent not only with the message of Zechariah that God is with them. For He says, return to Me and I will return to you. But also it's consistent with Scripture as a whole. You see, the Bible doesn't reveal a God who is distant And disinterested, and I think sometimes as evangelicals we talk about God wanting a personal relationship with us, and we use that too vaguely. And I think sometimes it has this kind of fuzzy, comforting feeling, like oh, like, like God wants to be our just our friend. And I don't think we're clear enough in what that means, but we do really believe that God desires a personal relationship with His people. That He wants to know you, and He wants to be known. He wants you to know Him. God wants a loving and caring relationship with His people because He's not a distant and disinterested God. I had a conversation this past week with a, a sales rep. He said, I'm a neophyte, and I'm not very smart. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm new to all of this. He said, I just, I, I just got baptized. I, my wife and I, we've been looking for a church for 30 some odd years. Not really, I think it was more than 30 years. He said, "But it, however long it was, 30 some odd years, 40 years. We've been looking for a church casually. We go once in a while. We don't. We, if it sticks, it sticks. If it clicks, it clicks. Whatever. But we don't. We don't often go back. We go once in a while. And we we went to this church. He goes, I've never seen anything like it. It was a Bible church. It turns out it was a it was a Southern Baptist church plant. But he was. It was a Bible church. And I went to this Bible church, and everything was different. He goes, They taught the Bible, and I started understanding what was being taught. And, and he says it's amazing. I never understood that Jesus died for my sins. I never understood that I'm a sinner in need of grace. I never understood the gospel. And he said, "And I'm learning all this stuff and I, I just got baptized and it's so exciting and so encouraging." He said, "But the other day in prayer meeting we we're talking and somebody said, "Pray for me because I got this cut on my finger and it's getting infected." And he said, "Come on, are you crazy? You want to bother God with a cut on your finger that's infected?" He goes God's not interested. God's got like big problems, like think about Iran, right? Like North Korea. Don't be bothering him with this petty stuff. And then and he said, but then my pastor was like, no, God wants to know about these things. He wants to hear from us. He goes, "Is that true?" Because he never experienced anything like this. He was learning that God is a personal God, not some disinterested deity off in space who sets things into motion and then doesn't care. He cares about us. And he was amazed at the love of God, that the God of the universe would care about this this person's cut in their finger. God's not a disinterested God. He's a personal, loving God who wants to be in close relationship with His people. So getting back to our text, I want you to notice that the angel's report is not good. That God is there amongst them. He's in the valley with them. That becomes clear to Zechariah. And those who are sent out to patrol the earth, they report back and they report back to to God and they say this. Then, um, Verse 9, Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So Zechariah says, What's going on here? And the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They're those who went out to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, the one who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. And you go, how can that not be a good report? Right? All the earth is peaceful and quiet. It appears to be good news, but it's clearly not, as evidenced by verse 2. 12. If you look at Zechariah 1, verse 12, here's what God, here's what the pre-incarnate Christ, this theophany, this appearance of God, here's what God says. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The response is, how long is this going to continue? It's not good news. And I'll tell you why. Because if you read Haggai 2, verses 21 through 22, here's what was said. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. In other words, there is a coming judgment and the people who have taken My people into captivity will pay. And while Jeremiah 29:11 had apparently been fulfilled, or Jeremiah 29:10, excuse me, for thus says the Lord, "When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you bringing you back to this place." That had been fulfilled, the full prophecy hadn't been fulfilled. If you read on, if you read Jeremiah 25, verses 12 through 14, it says this. Then when 70 years have been completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make an everlasting desolation. I will pray upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. You see, Persia had overthrown Babylon, but it hadn't been some great massive destruction, and now it was just another evil ruling nation that was over them. Yeah, they'd been able to return, but the people were naturally thinking, where's the judgment? We were taken off. Yes, we disobeyed, but God promised that He would restore us after 70 years. He promised we'd rebuild the temple. Remember how great our nation was in Solomon's day? Remember how great it was in David's day? And now we have these evil rulers standing over us. And these angels, they, they report back and say, we patrol the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. You know, it's a picture, I think, of what, ex- what exists today. That today, oftentimes, we, we sometimes step back and we go, why is God not punishing the evil? And you hear unbelievers say, How can God let these things go on? There's so much evil in the world. Well, God is patient, waiting for us to come to repentance. He's not slow about His promises. But oftentimes it seems like, in this world that we live in, that it seems like the earth, the the world is at peace, even in the midst of their sin. They're going on in happy oblivion, and that's what was happening here. So as we move on in verses 12-13, through we read this. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem, for the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And then verse 13, this is amazing. The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me, gracious words, comforting words. And Here's where I'm inclined to believe that the rider on the red horse, the man among the myrtle trees, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. For here we see him interceding on behalf of God's people. He says, how long will you have no compassion? He intercedes for them, or on their behalf to God. How long before your promises are fulfilled? And as Hebrews 7.25 makes it clear, that Jesus lives forever to intercede on our behalf before the Father. And in this, we not only have a picture of Jesus interceding for us, but we also have a great example of prayer. It's not wrong to ask why or how long, right? Not only is such a question in today's text, but it's also the cry of Jesus from the cross. He says, Why? Why, O Lord, have you forsaken me? And it's appropriate for us to ask why and even remind the Lord of his promises as we see being done here by this angel of the Lord. The caveat, if you will, is that we'd better be seeking understanding. If we're going to come to the Lord and say, why? It better be, why? Not, why? Why are you doing this? we better be seeking understanding and not merely questioning the Lord's integrity or purposes. And when in times of trial and distress we cry out with a heartfelt, why? He is gracious and kind to answer us, just as we read in verse 13. I love this verse. The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words. Comforting words. And I don't know about you, but in times when you're at the bottom of your pit, you're in the valley, you know the Lord is near, but you just still cry out, why? It's often in those times that you hear God comfort you the most with kind and gracious and comforting words. And praise God for that. And what were these gracious and comforting words? that were spoken. Verse 14, So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This is the Lord who is sovereign over all things, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I'm jealous for my people. I want my people's affection. I want them because it is right for them to worship me. It is right for them to be in right relationship with me, to be purely devoted to me and me alone. See, when we get jealous, it." manifests itself in sinful ways. God has a right to be jealous. He should be jealous for our affection. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He says, verse 15, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. In other words, yes, they were used as a tool to, to bring about punishment and repentance on, on my people, God says, but I was angry for a little while. And they furthered that. Here the Hebrew has the idea, the connotation of being extended beyond the time limit. He says, they, they, were, they punished my people beyond the amount that they should have. And they're continuing this disaster. So then he says, verses 16 and 17, "...therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem." Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. So, here's where I want to draw out the four promises previously mentioned. I'm not going to say that was all background, right? <laughs> because we don't have that much left. But most of that's background, and then we have these four promises previously mentioned, God tells Zechariah that he will return to Jerusalem with compassion. He says, I'm going to return to Jerusalem with compassion. In fact, the text more literally reads, I have returned with compassion. In other words, he speaks as though it's already been done. And this tense is sometimes referred to as the prophetic perfect tense. There's debate about this and exactly what all this means, but the idea is that it's commonly used throughout the Old Testament with regard to God's promises, God's promises that are, that are going to happen in the future are sometimes referred to in past tense. Why? Because they can be viewed with such certainty that you can say they're already done. So in other words, it's like this. Next year at Mother's Day, I could say, uh, Mother's Day 2018, we went to eat Chinese food, right? Because I can guarantee that it's quite certain that we will go and eat Chinese food. So I can refer to that in the past tense tense as though it's already been done it's been accomplished the difference is with the lord when the lord says this will happen it will happen and nothing will stand in the way of god's promises so he can speak or we, the prophets can speak about god's promises as though they've already been accomplished so he says he says not only i will comfort or i will visit my people, I will return with compassion, but I have returned with compassion. And the Lord gives four specific promises, or four specific ways he's going to show his compassion. So number one, number one, He will build his kingdom. He will build up his kingdom. In verse 16, the Lord declares, "My house will be built." So He says, "I will enable you to finish this work on the temple." I know that you're disheartened. I know that you're discouraged. I know that you see all this trouble. But I am in this. This isn't up to you. I will build it. This was another conversation I had with the same sales rep. He said, how can I pray to God and ask Him to help this woman with her cut when I'm dealing with sinful thoughts? He said, I need to get rid of these sinful thoughts before I come to God. And I said... I said, No, you need to come to God with the sinful thoughts and ask Him to help you. And He said, Well, I thought God told me to get rid of the sinful thoughts. And I said, He did. And He said, But now you're telling me God's going to help me get rid of them. And I said, He is. That's the point. You need to come to Him, ask Him for help, and He is the one who will enable you. And that's exactly what's pictured here. I will build, my house will be built. Yes, you are charged with building it, but I will be the one who will enable you to build it. So we see this promise. He will build up His kingdom. Number two, the second promise. He will expand His kingdom. Again in verse 16 it reads this, the Lord says, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Here the picture is of a builder who's going to stretch a measuring line. It's going to be stretched out because the the city will be bigger. Bigger. The kingdom will be bigger than what was originally thought. It's going to expand beyond these walls. And if you go to Jerusalem and you realize there's these walls that they not only keep people out, but they keep people in. And the idea is that these, the city is going to expand well beyond those walls. The temple is going to expand beyond, beyond the original dimensions. And if you, read, if you read the Old Testament and you read about the, the temple and it being rebuilt, you realize just how big the temple will be not just the temple of Solomon's day, but the temple that is to come. Number three, he says he will prosper his people. So not only will he build his kingdom and will he expand his kingdom, but number three, he will prosper his people. In verse 17, the sovereign Lord says, my cities will again overflow with prosperity. You know, this is a somewhat dangerous ground that we find ourselves on when we talk about prospering because there's so, there's this prosperity gospel that exists that says God wants to bless you he wants to prosper you he wants to make you wealthy he wants to give you everything your heart desires and that's not the point the point is that they will be prospered in him that they will grow in him and then fourthly he says he will comfort the fourth promise is he will comfort his people So not only will He build His kingdom, not only will He expand His kingdom, not only will He prosper His people, but fourthly, He will comfort His people. Finally, again in verse 17, it says this, "...and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem." Again, we have this idea of a personal relationship. That God is going to comfort them and care for them and bring them peace. What amazing promises to a people who are living in uncertain times who are unsure about what's going on. They're called to do the work of the Lord and return to the Lord, but all they see around them is trouble. So the big question is this. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our, to our lives? And I hope that the application isn't far from your minds already. In times of uncertainty, in times of difficulty, we can be sure that God is close to His people. And that He's sovereign. He's in control. And that He's faithful to His promises. And we can and should in those times cry out to Him and ask for understanding. And we should remind not just Him, but the purpose of reminding Him is more to remind ourselves. Remind ourselves of His promises. And in this, I think we have four promises that we can claim. Number one, He will build His church. He will build His church. As He told Peter in Matthew 16, He said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is in the work of building His church. So yes, we are called to be part of that. But He will enable us to do that because it's ultimately His work. That's why in Philippians 1 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to carry it through to completion. God finishes that which he started. He started working on us, he's going to carry it through to completion. He started working on his church, and he's going to continue to build his church. So we should claim that promise and trust in that promise. Secondly, he will expand his kingdom. It's a beautiful picture of this. Jesus in Mark four, verses thirty through thirty-two. It says this, and he said, "How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when the seed when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are sown upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade." that God will expand His kingdom, His kingdom will grow, and it will be far bigger than Harmony Bible Church. Yes, God will build His church and we are included in that if we remain in Him and if we are truly His church. But it's going to be far beyond this, this organization, this group of people. He is in the process of expanding His kingdom. And we should claim that promise. And we should step out in faith and be used of him as he works that through. And number three, he will prosper his people. So having seen that he will build his church, that he will expand his kingdom, we can thirdly say that he will prosper his people. In difficult times, not only is he building and growing the church, but he's prospering us as a people. John 10.10 we read, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And in Jeremiah 29, 11, we love to read this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And again, we need to be careful because the, the prosperity gospel preachers say, oh, God wants to bless your socks off. He wants you to put $10 in the offering plate and then get $100 back. Or if I actually read this that one of the preachers actually said, if you put $10 in the plate, $100 will come back to you because God promised. He will return everything tenfold. If you put $1,000 in the plate, you're going to get $10,000 back. That is the biggest load of junk I have ever heard in my life. That's not the Gospel. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We love to read this. Plans for welfare and and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. This is written to people who were carried off in captivity and told... Settle down and stay a while. Build homes and have kids, because you're going to be here for 70 years. Oh, by the way, I have plans to bless you. Sometimes that blessing doesn't look like what we think it's going to look like, but God will prosper His people. Second Corinthians 8, 9, that's why it says, For you know how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Not rich with material wealth. God will care for you. I believe that. What's the worst that's going to happen to us? We're going to starve and go to heaven? And God said He won't allow that to happen. Right? He cares for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. He's going to care for us. But that also doesn't mean that He's going to make us rich in material possessions. He's going to make us rich in that which matters. Rich in the things of Him. We will grow in Him because, as we said earlier, He will carry us through to completion personally. So, having seen that He will that He will build His church, that He will expand His kingdom, and that He will prosper His people, fourthly, we see that He will comfort His people. Jesus said, John fourteen, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of Truth, though whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you have known Him because He abides in you and will be with you. That God has sent us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit who comforts us in our affliction. So we can cry out to Him and say, God, I need understanding. I don't understand these trials that I'm going through, this valley that I'm in, but I claim Your promises, I remember Your promises, and I remember that You said You sent Your Comforter, and He is with me now. Talk about being close to God's people. You can't get much closer than inside of you. So we cry out, as does Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-5. through 5, Blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So we read this vision of God coming to Zechariah in these uncertain and difficult times, and we say, praise God for the promises to His people then and the promises to us now. That we can say today that He will build His church He will expand His kingdom. He will prosper His people and He will comfort us even in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for Your faithfulness in revealing this message to Zechariah, for helping him to see that you are close to your people. And God, that you want people to cry out to you, to return to you, that you may return to them. God, may we cry out to you in our distress. And God, may we see and feel your closeness. God, may we trust fully in your promises. May we seek understanding while trusting in your promises. I praise you for the grace you've shown us, for the comfort you've given us for the way you build us and carry us through, and the way you are doing that with your church as well. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.